Father, as we spend another hour or so now, I pray that energy would be given to us and our hearts, eyes would be open to your glory and our minds would be made keen for true understanding and my words would be brought into conformity to your word and the Holy Spirit would come and move in me and through this message into our hearts and you would awaken in us the capacities to meditate on the glories of Christ in such a way that we see and savor and show more of them, more of Him than we ever have. So we are about making much of you, Lord Jesus, and I ask that you would advance that now in your own precious name, I pray, amen. Pastors are people who do their work by using words. If we don't use words, we can't do our ministry. Surgeons can do their work without words. You don't even need to know your surgeon. If he gets the cancer out while you're under the anesthesia perfectly, you're very thankful and that's all you you care about. He got it done. We can't get our work done without the use of, of words. And the reason is that God has designed the world and the church and your heart and his word in such a way that the ultimate and highest aims of the ministry come about through words. That's the way he's designed it. For example, the new birth comes about through words. First Peter 1, you have been born again through the living and abiding word, which is the gospel. Saving faith comes about through words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. (coughs) Edification. Ephesians 4.29, let only speech come out of your mouth that is good for upbuilding. Edification comes through words. Purity, love, good conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love. It comes from a pure heart. Joy in Christ, freedom from sin, sanctification. I've got texts for all of these and no time to give them to you. Salvation comes through words. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you save yourself and your hearers. This is an awesome role for human words. Everything that we want to achieve of a high nature comes through Words, you can't do your ministry without using human words. Now, if that's all we said about the cause of our ultimate purposes in ministry, then we would be professionals. If the great aims of our work were decisively the effect of our words, we would be professional wordsmiths. But as you know, those aims are not decisively brought about by our words. 
They are decisively brought about by God. And our words are instruments in the hands of God. So, for example, God made his people alive while they were dead so that they could even hear the words through which they are born again. God is the one who gives faith, Ephesians 2, 8. God is the one who is at work in us to do what is pleasing in his sight. So sanctification is the work of of God. Love, joy, peace, all of which are brought about through words, are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fighting sin successfully is the work of the Spirit. By the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. So they're all brought about through words, and words are not decisive in bringing them about, but God is decisive in bringing them about. They are decisively supernatural. No amount of professional training, no amount of professional expertise, no amount of poetic effort can bring about the aims of the ministry if God withholds his power. That's why Paul said, I did not come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power. In other words, I renounce the professionalism of the sophists, of the Stoics, who know how to manipulate language to work an audience to get a desired effect. I just renounce that. And in my use of words, I lean on God, that power would be shown through my words and people would experience the supernatural. Which raises this question for all of us in this room. Does then the way I use words make any difference in whether the great aims of ministry are achieved? Since God is the decisive cause, my words are instruments in his hands, does it matter what kind of words I use and how I use them for God to do his decisive work? That's a key question. And the Bible answer to that is clear as can be. Yes, it makes a difference. For example, the Bible is very clear that the the content and the clarity and the spirit, at least those three elements of the way we use words, make a huge difference in the effectiveness of the outcome of our ministry. Content. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. So if you turn away from truth, if you turn away from Christ, if you turn away from the unsearchable riches and talk about something else, it will jeopardize the effects 
of your ministry. Content matters. So with clarity, Paul asks the church, pray for us that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So if you speak in such a way that it's not clear, it will undermine the effect and the decisive work of God will not come to reality. God has brought his sovereign work into some kind of correlation with truthfulness and clarity so that if these go away, he goes away. Same with the Holy Spirit or just the spirit of the words. Paul pleads for prayer that words may be given to me in the opening of my, ba- my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Why would he ask them to pray for that if it made no difference? Evidently, it makes a difference whether you wimp out or are bold in speaking truth. And so at least Content, clarity, and spirit, the Bible makes clear there's a correlation between how you do words and whether God does his decisive work. Then the question becomes, is there more that can be said from the Bible about the way you use words that may have an effect on their effectiveness in ministry? And to answer that, it seems to me that the way you would do it is ask the Bible, how do you use language? That is, ask God, how did you inspire these writers to use words to bring about this intended effect? Because I presume that when God inspires writers in their own personality and their own culture, to write a certain way, he cares about the integrity and the effectiveness of that language. I just assume that, and if that's true, then I gather we can learn something from the kind of language that's in the Bible. And when you look at the kind of language that's in the Bible, what you see is that the variety is overwhelming. There are so many different uses of language they can't be quantified. George Herbert was a poet and a pastor, and therefore he raises the question about poetry. God evidently believes that it is fitting and effective to inspire biblical poetry. So if you go to Leland Riken, for example, and ask him, how much of the Bible is poetry? He wrote an article for Bibliotheca Sacra back in 1990, and in it, he quotes Hosea 12.10, where God says, this is King James and quite literal, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes. So here you have God Almighty saying, I use similitudes, meaning 
parables, metaphors, analogies, similes, comparisons, similarities. I, I inspire men to say things indirectly pointing to truth instead of always choosing the least imaginative word in order to say things most directly. That's what I do. How much does he do that? And Riken says, one-third of the Bible is not too high an estimate. Quote, beyond these one-third, predominantly poetic parts of the Bible, figurative language appears throughout the Bible, and whenever it does, it requires the same type of analysis given to, to poetry. So, summarizing so far, pastors are people who use words to do their main work. If they don't use words, they don't do their work. They cannot do their work without words. All the aims that we care about most, the Bible says, are brought about by the use of human words. Pastors saying things in preaching, in counseling, in teaching. The great actor, however, is God. And our words are instruments in his hands, and he's always decisive, and therefore our ministry is supernatural. If your ministry, if your words are being used the way God intends them to be used, they are vehicles of the supernatural. My aim in this conference is to protect us from doing anything in the ministry that isn't done with a view to leaning on God, with a view to his making that human agency supernatural. So this, this talk is about language. And I'm so eager for it not to be heard in any way as different from the three messages that have gone before, but exactly the same message. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So it must matter how you plant and how you water, but ultimately, God gives the, the growth. And the New Testament is explicit that it matters how you plant and how you water. The content matters, the clarity matters, the boldness matters, and evidently, there's a whole array of kinds of use of words that God thinks are really valuable for communicating what he wants communicated by which he will decisively do his saving and sanctifying and liberating and transforming work. Amazing. Herbert, George Herbert, continues the legacy, not an inspired spokesman, but just a continuation of the legacy of that third of the Bible, which we could call poetry. So my question now is, what can we learn from the life and the ministry of George Herbert for ourselves in regard to the use of language to accomplish the highest ends of ministry, which can only be accomplished by God. George Herbert was born in 1593, and he died a month short of his 40th birthday 
1633 of tuberculosis. He was 39 years old. He was an outstanding student at Westminster Preparatory School, writing Latin essays when he was 11 that would be published when he was 20. So you can see the kind of intellect we're dealing with here. Studied classics at Cambridge, graduated third in his class of 193 in 1612, got a BA and then three years later a a Master of Arts in Classics, then became a fellow at the university, and then he became the public orator, which was one of the most prestigious offices of the university, the one who wrote and spoke everything on every special occasion. And he wrote to his stepfather what it meant to have that office like this. The finest place in the university, though not the gainfulest, for the orator writes all the university letters, makes all the orations, be it to the king, prince, or whatever comes to the university to requite these pains. He takes place next to the doctors, is at all their assemblies and meetings, and sits above the proctors, and such like gainesses, which will please a young man very well. Close quote. Now that's a very important quote because what we're going to find is that the prestige of prominence and academic learning and all the gainesses and pleasures and parties that went with that position were the battleground where God had to fight him free to get him to obey his call to the ministry, which he did later, but not yet. He had made a vow to his mother in a certain way that we'll talk about later, and that vow was going to come into reality very, very soon. He wrote 11 years later, after writing that statement about being the orator, on the day that he was inducted as a parish priest into the little church at Bemerton in England, these words, I can now behold the court with an impartial eye and see plainly that it is made up of fraud, titles, and flattery, and many other such empty, imaginary, painted pleasures, pleasures that are so empty as not to satisfy, though they are enjoyed. But for now, it seemed like It was a good thing to serve the university, serve your country, serve your King James by being the orator. But the conflict in his soul between a call that had come to him much earlier and would now bear fruit eventually, the conflict in his soul that gave birth to so much of his poetry was becoming intense and he would yield to it. He had made a vow to his mother that he would serve God with all his life, and that was going to come true in a really radical way soon. And that, together with all the other torments of his soul, caused him ultimately to submit to God and to the call to the ministry of the parish priest. So in 1626, so what is he now? 
23 years old or so, he was inducted into the diaconate, ordained a deacon in the Anglican Church, and then in 1630, he was a priest at Bemerton. Bemerton was just a little village, still is, near the larger town of Salisbury where the cathedral was, and he loved music and would always go over there to listen to the music a couple of times a week. And his church is tiny, still there, you can see, go to Google and put in Bemerton, England, Bap of, and type in St. Andrew's Church, and you can just get out on the walking distance like I did, just walk right around the church on Google. It's just amazing. It's a beautiful, tiny little church. He never had more than 100 people in his church, and he was a pastor for less than three years, and then he died. He was married for three years to Jane Danvers, distant relative of his stepfather. They had no children of of their own biologically, but they adopted three nieces who had lost their parents, and he died of tuberculosis. Those are the bare facts. It's not a life you would make much of because it seemed so short and so conflicted and not very complex, not very adventuresome. The only reason you have ever heard, if you've ever heard, of George Herbert is because of his poems. He wrote a little book on the country parson, but that that would have died away without his poetry. It's not a book that would have made it on its own, I don't think, but it's tagged into these complete works so that we know everything that he wrote, and he didn't write much. Without Without those, we would not have known who he was. The reason anybody has heard of George Herbert today is because of something that happened about three weeks before he died. His friend, Nicholas Farrar, who had founded a kind of Protestant monastic community called Little Gidding, sent a friend of his, Edmund Duncan, to find out how George Herbert was doing because he knew he was quite ill. And he was, he was dying. And on Edmund Duncan's second visit to George Herbert, about three weeks before his death, he took out of his cabinet the most cherished earthly possession that he had, and he handed it to him with these words, Sir, I pray, deliver this little book to my dear brother Farrar, and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my Master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. (coughs) Desire him to read it, and then, if he can think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let him be made, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it, for I and it (coughs) are less than the least of God's mercies. In that little book, handwritten, were 167 poems called The Temple 
because the poems are arranged to lead you into the church, through the church, and then out into the church militant by the way they're put together. Nicholas Farrar published that in a few months later in 1633 after Herbert's death. None of them had ever been published before. He had simply written them and never published them. Then they were published four times in the next three years. They were kept in print often for a hundred years and they're still in print today. And on the basis of those poems alone, George Herbert is considered one of the greatest religious poets of all time. Richard Baxter, 48 years later, said, Herbert speaks to God like one that really believeth a God and whose business in this world is most with God. Heart work and heaven work make up his books. William Cooper loved Herbert's poetry in his struggle with depression. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the critic of the early part of the 19th century, the poet and critic, wrote to a member of the Royal Academy, I find more substantial comfort now in pious George Herbert's temple than in all the poetry since the poetry of Milton. Herbert's poetry is found in virtually every single anthology of English literature. He is one of the few great poets who is loved by both specialists in poetic technique and non-specialists who just want a word from God in some powerful and creative way. He was known both for his technical rigor, as the way he used language, and spiritual depth. T.S. Eliot, 20th century, said, the exquisite variations of form in the poems of the temple show a resourcefulness of invention which seems inexhaustible and for which I know no parallel in English poetry. He was an exquisite craftsman of language. Now we'll come back to craftsmanship in a few minutes, but let's linger for a moment on the power of the message of the poems that could minister deeply to an opium addict like Samuel Taylor Coleridge. One of the reasons that Coleridge found his poems so powerful for his own warfare was the sovereignty of God that lies underneath them like a solid rock to stand on in all these poems. In fact, Coleridge, unlike many people of his day and today, saw that the criticisms of Calvinism, which is what the theology of George Herbert was, the criticisms of Calvinism obscured the comforts of the doctrine. Here's what Coleridge wrote. If ever a book was calculated to drive men to despair, 
It is Bishop Jeremy Taylor's book on repentance. It first opened my eyes to Arminianism and that Calvinism is practically a far more soothing and consoling system. Calvinism, compared with Taylor's Arminianism, is the lamb in wolfskin to the wolf in lambskin. The one is cruel in the phrases, the other is cruel in the doctrine. That's Coleridge on Calvinism and Herbert's embrace of it. Jean Edward Veith, many of you know him today, wrote his doctoral dissertation on this aspect of George Herbert's ministry and life and poetry. He argues Herbert is, quote, the clearest and most consistent poetic voice of reformed spirituality. The dynamics of Calvinism, he says, are the dynamics of Herbert's poetry. He goes on to say, Coleridge, perhaps faced with the incapacity of his own will in his inability, for instance, to simply choose to stop taking opium, saw the consolation in a theology that based salvation not on the contingency of human will and efforts, but on the omnipotent will and unceasing effort of God. Close quote. So Herbert knew the answer to Coleridge's need. And he knew the answer to his own soul conflicts. And it was not free will. It was the unremitting sovereign intervention of God into my rebellious life to preserve me and rescue me and liberate me and sanctify me. Lord, he said, Lord, men, or rather make us, one creation will not suffice our turn. Except thou make us daily, we shall spurn our own salvation. Or again, in the poem called Nature, he wrote, Full of rebellion, I would die, or fight, or travail, or deny that thou hast ought to do with me. Oh, tame my heart. It is thy highest art to captivate strongholds to thee. And that's the strong, sovereign work of God that Coleridge found solid ground for his feet in. Herbert called his poems the record of his conflict with God but, in spite of all the, the conflict, every one of them, no exceptions, every one of them communicate, when all is said and done, God wins by putting sovereign covenant ground under the feet of his embattled children. So the poem that gets that across probably most clearly and shows that God is the one who is giving the faith and giving the confession is the poem called The Hold Fast. I threatened to observe the strict decree, O oh my dear God, with all my power and might, 
But I was told by one, it could not be. Yet I might trust in God to be my light. Then I will trust, said I, in Him alone. Nay, in to trust in Him was also His. We must confess that nothing is our own. Then I confess that He my succor is. But to have naught is ours, not to confess that we have naught. I stood amazed at this, much troubled, till I heard a friend express that all things were more ours by being his. What Adam had and forfeited for all, Christ keepeth now who cannot fail or fall. That's what Coleridge felt as a precious gift from Herbert's poems. Utter honesty and what Herbert called the many spiritual conflicts that have passed between God and my soul. On the one hand, the honesty about his own conflicts with the God-given confidence that his faith and his perseverance and his safety lie in Christ. Sovereignty of God's love was the constant theme. We all acknowledge both thy power and love to be exact, transcendent, and divine, who dost so strongly and so sweetly move while all things have their will, yet none but thine. All things have their will, yet none but thine. So, from the springs of his Anglican, high church, reformed spiritual heritage, Herbert has nurtured wounded, hungry souls for centuries. And he has done it with one of the most, or as one of the most gifted craftsmen of language that has ever worked. So not only is he regarded as the greatest devotional poet in English by many, but his skill in the use of language has earned him high praises in the 20th century by T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Elizabeth Bishop, Seamus Heaney. He loved crafting language. in new and powerful ways. It was for him a way of seeing and a way of savoring and a way of showing the wonders of Christ. The central theme of his poetry is the redeeming love of Christ and he labored with all his literary might to see it clearly and to feel it deeply and to show it strikingly. We don't have a single sermon of George Herbert, not one. I would have loved to see what he did. But we do have his poems, and that's where we see what he does with language. 
We have his poetry. The beauty of the subject correlates in his mind with the beauty of the language. Under God, poetic effort for him, poetic effort produced a craft that enabled him to see God more clearly and feel him more deeply. 167 poems in the temple. 116 of them have meters, you know what that is, the cadence, the da 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 or not, have meters, 116 of the 167 have meters that are not repeated by any of the other poems. You see what that means? This is unheard of. There's never been a poet like this. It means he constantly created new poetic forms for a new word. <laughs> I try to write poems, and I fall back on the same four or five meters all the time. All I want to do is couplets and eight beats in a, in a line. That's my home. 116 ways of doing meter that nobody had thought of before. Why did he do that? Peter Porter expresses the amazement poets feel when they encounter Herbert. He says, the practicing poet examining a Herbert poem is like someone bending over a Rolls-Royce engine. How is it all done? Why can't I make something so elaborate and yet so simple? Why is a machine which performs so well also so beautiful? Herbert could not conceive of a formless poem. The poet's duty was to perceive and communicate the beauty of God. And the process he would, in the process he would construct out of the chaos of experience and the chaos of language an object which would reflect the beauty of the subject. That's what a poet is supposed to do, he believed. In other words, he never aimed at art for art's sake. He never aimed at technique for technique's sake. When he was 17 years old, back to his mother now and the vow he made, he wrote to his mother on New Year's Day, first year at Cambridge, sent her two sonnets and said in the letter accompanying the sonnets that he lamented the vanity of those many love poems that are daily writ and consecrated to Venus. And that so few are writ that look towards God and heaven. And then came his vow. 
I vow that my poor abilities in poetry shall be all and ever consecrated to God's glory. Now, he kept that vow in a very radical way. Of the 167 poems in the temple, not one is written about a human being or in honor of a human being. All 167 poems are written about God, about the ways of God, about the redeeming work of God, about the mercies and grace of God. And the reason that Herbert writes with consummate skill is because his subject was consummately glorious. The subject of every single poem in the temple, Helen Wilcox says, is in one way or another, God. He said, in the temper, how should I praise thee, Lord? How should my rhymes gladly engrave thy love in steel? If what my soul doth feel, sometimes my soul might ever feel. <clears throat> His aim was to engrave the love of God in steel. And the name of that poem is called Temper. All of his titles are, are multi-meaning. <laughs> the temper of a steel, the temper of metal by being tried, as well as the temper of the heart. His aim was to feel the love of God, engrave it in steel with human language. His poetry was entirely for God <clears throat> because his life was entirely for God. In a poem called The Elixir, teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it all for thee. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold, for that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. I had expected him to say, sold. He's talking about poetry. He's doing this all the time. His twists and surprises are stunning. He believed that God ruled all things in his sovereign power and therefore all things spoke of God. The providence of God was pervasive in the world Therefore, everything is redolent with God in the world if you have eyes to see. And the goal of the poet is to see and savor and say what he sees about God in, in all things. My favorite phrase in all of his writings is that he has made us the secretary of his praise. Let me read you the context. O sacred providence, who from end to end strongly and sweetly movest, shall I write and not of thee, through whom my fingers bend to hold my quill, shall they not do thee right? 
of all the creatures both in sea and land. Only to man thou hast made known thy ways and put the pen alone into his hand and made him secretary of thy praise. That's what you are. It's not about people who write poems. This is about people who use language. Secretaries of God's praise, writing it out with our lips or in our pens for our congregations to see the glory. This is why so many of his poems lament his dullness his impending loss of powers. He mourns the diminishing ability to praise brimful. A poem called Dullness, he writes, Why do I languish thus, drooping and dull, as if I were all earth? Oh, give me quickness that I may with mirth praise thee brimful. And he groaned that he saw as his tuberculosis took over more and more that he was losing his ability to focus and praise God brimful with his language. He wrote poetry to show God's power because he lived to show God's power. And when God now and then restored his strength, which he did periodically as he was so sick for so long. When God restored him, he took the relief as a gift and he exulted in the gift of life, which meant for him the gift of writing. He said things like this in, the, in a poem called The Flower. And now in age, I bud again. After so many deaths, I live and write I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. Oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. Or in a poem called Joseph's Coat, I live to show his power who once did bring my joys to weep and now my griefs to sing. Writing poems for George Herbert was not the recording of an experience with God. It was the having of an experience with God. The writing was part of the experience. It was the making itself. In the making of the words he saw, he felt, he met God. Communion with God happened in the writing. And probably the poem that says this the best is a poem called Quiddity. Latin quid, the essence of things. It's got other meanings as well, like all of his titles do. But he meant the essence of things. Now, what, what would he write in a poem that's entitled Quiddity, Essence? 
And in the poem, he argues versing stanzas of poems are nothing in themselves. And then watch how he ends it. I'll read you the whole thing. God, a verse is not a crown, no point of honor or gay suit, no hawk or banquet or renown, nor a good sword, nor yet a lute. I, it cannot vault or dance or play. It never was in France or Spain, nor can it entertain the day with a great stable or domain. It is no office, art, or news, nor the exchange or busy hall, but it is that which, while I use, I am with thee, and most take all. And now those last few words, most take all, nobody knows what they mean. I mean, I've read as many commentaries on those last words as I can find, and everybody's speculating. I've got my ideas, but leave it aside. The words just before it are crystal clear. After all that negative statement about what a poem isn't, what verses aren't, he says, but here's what it is. It is that which while I use, I am with thee. That is very significant. His poems are that which while he makes them, He's with God. The writing of a verse gave Herbert the quiddity of the spiritual experience. For Herbert, this experience, seeing God, savoring God, was directly connected to the care and the rigor and the subtlety and the delicacy of the poetic effort. The effort, not the product. Not like, I'm done, put it in a drawer, read a few days later, like it, feel good about myself and God. And No. It's the agonizing effort to find those strange and surprising and striking and fresh words and how to put them together that was the experience of meeting God as he tried to say God. Wherefore, with my utmost art I will sing thee, and the cream of all my heart I will bring thee. So clearly, he's writing for his soul and his God. And yet, he did have in mind that maybe someday, this might be useful for others. Never published them. None of them. They're in his cabinet. But as he brought his utmost art and the cream of all his heart, he knew that if God would be pleased, they could do good to somebody someday and if they didn't, let them be burned. 
Here's the way he introduced the temple, all these poems. Here's the initial poem. Hearken unto a verser who may chance rhyme thee to good and make a bait of pleasure. A verse may find him who a sermon flies and turn delight into a sacrifice. I may rhyme thee to good, he hoped. So he believed that the delights he was finding in God, the glories he was seeing in the making, could have a spillover effect on others who later would see what he had, had done as he tried to rhyme them to good. Joseph Summers said of Herbert's poems, we can only recognize the immediate imperative of the greatest art. You must change your life. <laughs> In other words, he said, as you read these poems, there comes at you in the force of them, you can't stay the same and deal with integrity the way he's dealt with reality. Simone Weil, the French philosopher, was totally agnostic towards God and Christianity growing up. And when she encountered Herbert's poem called Love Three, she became a kind of Christian mystic and said, this is the most beautiful poem in the world. So he has made an impact. An impact because of his deep reformed spirituality, his proven theology of grace centered on the cross. He's made an impact because of the honesty about the conflicts of his own soul that he records so faithfully and yet brings to firm ground underneath his feet. He made an impact because of his poetic effort to express things with the utmost art and from the cream of all his, his heart. And let me close with the main lesson that I want to press upon you and me. I think it would be fruitful for you and me if we too made a poetic effort to see and savor the glories of Christ the way he did. Now, let me make sure you know why I'm using the phrase poetic effort. I think it would be a huge mistake for you to leave this talk feeling what John thinks we should all do is write poems. You would have profoundly misunderstood me. I think the vast majority of you should not spend any time writing poems. <laughs> but I think all of you should spend significant time in what I'm calling poetic effort. So I'm going to close by trying to explain to you what I mean by that and why I think it is valuable. I'm proposing this as an answer to the question, 
what does it mean to meditate on the glories of Christ? I'd love to hear your answer to that question. What do you do, I mean do, for five minutes in order to meditate on the glories of Christ? What is the process of your mind called, I am now meditating on the glories of Christ? What do you do? And I'm answering that question as one way. What are the steps that we take fruitfully to meditate on the glory of Christ until we see it in some measure of appropriateness? Now, I've thought after this conference, maybe next year's conference should be a conference on prayer because the, the, the answer I'm going to mention here and then just pass over is the first answer is prayer. If you're looking, if you, if you caught a little teeny glimpse of some glory in a text, he feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. You catch some glimpse. Now, the disciples, it says later, were blind as a bat to that. They saw it and didn't see it. Now, you just saw it. What are you going to do for the next five minutes? Check your email? What are you going to do? Well, the first thing you're going to do is pray. God, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Help me see what is really here. Help me see every facet that I possibly can see in the diamond of Christ's power to feed 5,000 with five loaves or to walk on water or to heal the leper or to forgive sins. Almighty God alone can forgive sins. God, open my eyes. You pray like that, don't you? We're pleading with him. Open my eyes, incline my heart, give my heart's eyes to see, Ephesians 1, 17. Psalm 139, verse 36. So that's a talk by itself. The prayer life of the meditator. So let's put that aside, and I'm assuming you do that a lot. Now, my question is, once you have prayed and asked God to do all his sovereign part in opening your eyes and helping you see the glories and you are trusting he will do it what do you do next wait 10 seconds and say it didn't happen I'm answering this question for you what you do next okay that's my goal. What do you do next as a pastor, not a poet, as a pastor who are charged with speaking the unsearchable riches of Christ? What do you do next once you've asked God to show them to you and you're trusting that he will? What do you do next in your study, elbows on your desk, Bible in front of you. What do you do next? That's my question. <clears throat> when we have asked God to do all he's appointed to do, 
what do we do next? And my thesis here at the end, my point is that the effort to say freshly is a way of seeing freshly. The effort to say strikingly is a way of seeing striking things. The effort to say beautifully is a way of seeing beauty. And you don't have to write poetry for that to be true. You do have to make a poetic effort. For George Herbert, the poetic effort was a form of meditation on the glories of Christ mediated through Scripture. Conceive, for him, conceiving and writing poems was a way of holding a glimpse of Christ in his mind and turning it around and around and around for moments and maybe hours. I don't know how long it took him. Turning the glimpse, you get a glimpse. He's feeding 5,000 people this piece of bread. <coughs> and you turn it around and around and around in your mind until it yields an opening into its essence and its wonder. And you see like you've never seen before your God. This is meditation. Getting a glimpse of glory in the Bible or in the world, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and turning that glimpse, you start with a glimpse, a God-given glimpse, a pinprick of light, and you put your eye to it, and you move your head back and forth until oh, there's a world on the other side. How do you do that? For Herbert, the effort to see and savor the glory of Christ was the effort to say it in a way that it had never been said before. The saying, the effort, the poetic effort to say it in a way that it had never been said before was a way of seeing it. I, I hope one of the effects of this point is to disabuse you of the greatness of spontaneity. You know what the effect of most spontaneity is? Rut. You know, I just want to be spontaneous when I get up in front of my people. I don't want to give any forethought here to how to do a pastoral prayer or welcome the people or do an offertory. Just going to see what comes out because that will be authentic. It won't be authentic. It'll be a rut. Lead God and direct. You're going to sound like you sound over and over and over again. God has given you a mind to reflect on the glory of an offertory. 
the glory of welcoming human beings into the presence of God for which there might be some forethought that would bring wonders to your mind, that would stun your people, that they've walked into the presence of somebody who's lived with God this morning and has something significant to say about this moment. I'm not excited about spontaneity. Well, yes, I am, too, because right now, I, this is not in my manuscript. <laughs> you, you worked that out. I worked really hard on this, and that's one of the reasons I just said what I said. Does that make sense? Oh, good. Good. Now, where was I? I've lost my place. Herbert found, as most poets and most preachers, I think, at least lots of preachers, found that the effort to glimpse, the effort to put a glimpse of glory into striking, moving words makes the glimpse grow. The effort to say deeply what he saw made what he saw deeper. The effort to put the wonder in unexpected rhyme or pleasing rhythm or startling cadence or meter or an uncommon metaphor or surprising expression or unusual juxtaposition or words that blend agreeably with assonance and consonance, all that effort, I'm calling it poetic effort, not poems, just poetic effort, all that caused his heart to see. So last night, I was listening to Kent, and I wish I'd started writing them down earlier, but here's the one I remember right now. He knows the Fahrenheit of your soul. Raise your hand if you remember him saying that. That's never been said before in my hearing, ever, by anybody on the planet. You may have heard it from somewhere, you may have made it up, doesn't matter. I heard it for the first time. It had never been said before in 66, 67 years of my life. And it, it's just there doing some work. It's doing some work. Last night it was doing work. He knows the Fahrenheit of my soul. That's all I'm talking about. That's not a poem, but it, it probably took some effort to come up with it. Or you stumbled upon somebody who gave the effort. Doesn't matter. We do that all the time. Be, be, be arrogant if you thought you were the only one who could come up with a fresh way of saying something. It's one of the great values of reading poems. I'm very happy to give credit where I bump into things that are wonderfully helpful. The poetic effort to say beautifully is a way of seeing beauty. That's the new title of this talk. The poetic effort to see beautifully was a way of seeing beauty. The effort to find worthy words for Christ opens us more fully to the worth of Christ. Christ. 
and the experience of the worth of Christ. As Herbert says, it is that which while I use, I am with thee. So my point, last page, my point is that this is true for all pastors. Please don't hear me trying to make poem writers out of you. They would be bad. They would be bad poems, probably. Write them for your wife. Write them for your kids. That's what I've done all my life is write birthday poems and anniversary poems. And, and only now and then do they spill over into the, into the public. I've got hundreds of silly little poems where I've tried to experience my love for my kids. It's the night before their birthday. I'm not feeling anything special. But if I give an hour to say something special, I feel something special. I see something special. That's what I'm trying to say. The unsearchable riches of Christ is our subject matter. This is our job. To search out the unsearchable and speak it in a manner worthy of the Lord. The effort to say what is in the text is a way of seeing what is in the text. The effort to say it fresh is a way of seeing it fresh. The effort to say more about the glory than you've ever said before is a way of seeing more than you've ever seen before. And all that poetry emphasizes, poetry from Herbert or poetry from the Bible, is that the effort to say it surprisingly, provocatively, beautifully, uncovers truth and beauty that you may not find any other way. Now, did you hear I said that? This is my closing caution. I said, the effort to say in a sermon or at, a, at an elder meeting or over dinner, the effort to say something in a way that penetrates, is different, a Fahrenheit of the soul type word may open glories that you might not see another way. The reason I say it so cautiously, may, is because the last thing I want to do is create a new kind of strategy here that is the solution to every spiritual sight problem. Like, just do the poetic effort thing that he talked about and you'll see what you need to see. That's not true. God may have other ways for you to see. Like the death of your wife. The loss of a child. The announcement of cancer. Some beautiful act of sacrificial obedience may be the window onto glory that no poetic effort would ever give you. So don't overdo this message. It's just one way, just one way to meditate on the glories of Christ in the Bible. It is a good way. It's a proven way. It's a biblical way, and I commend it to you. And I think the best way for me to close in the last one minute would be to read a poem called Prayer. I choose to read this poem 
because it's the one that is celebrated as an expression of this activity. This is a sonnet. It's called prayer. has no verb in it. That is no main verb. It's not a sentence. It's a collection of about 20 phrases describing prayer. Most of which you will have never heard in your life. I would imagine this took him days to write, these 14 lines. They are very strange. And here's what he was doing. It hit him as a glimpse, I talk to God. I pray. Human beings are called, allowed, to talk to the creator of the universe. So that's a glimpse, right? That's a glimpse of something stunning. Now, he's not going to let that go. He's not going to say, oh, no, I can check my mail. I know what prayer is. No, talking to God. Got a good definition. Put that in my sermon. Move on to the next point. Oh, no way. He circles around this thing for who knows how long, asking, God, show me the wonder of what prayer is. So I'll read it, and then we'll pray and be on our way. Prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, engine against the almighty, sinner's tower, reversed thunder, Christ's side-piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear, softness and peace and joy and love and bliss, exalted manna, gladness of the best, heaven in ordinary. Man well-dressed, the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, the soul's blood, the land of spices, something heard. Father in heaven, I ask, for myself and for these friends, that when you give us a glimpse of glory, we would not run quickly to a commentary or a dictionary or the internet, but we would take a pen and piece of paper or our keyboard and pray and stay, if necessary, for hours until we can say something that we've never said before about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Not to the end of impressing anybody. That's the great danger of this message, that it would be misunderstood to impress. We don't want to impress. We want to awaken. We want to worship 
So come and show us how to meditate on the glories of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.